This recording is brought to you by Whitworth University. To hear additional programs, please visit www.whitworth.edu backslash podcast. ...of universities and uh, community partners since its inception well over a decade ago. And uh, Whitworth, like many other universities in the area, has allocated the time of its staff and its institutional resources to supporting INSLIP and making events like the one you're enjoying today happen. So it's truly a pleasure to welcome you on behalf of INSLIP, but this welcome is not a Whitworth welcome alone. All of my colleagues in INSLIP are so glad to have you here today. The Community Engagement Institute, um, you may know, is now actually in its third year. This is our third year of putting on this particular event. Um, it is the first time it's actually happened during the academic year. Um, we did this in response to uh, some of the faculty feedback that we got that said that summer was a difficult time to convene folks from universities that are on semesters and quarters. And so we're gathering right now during the academic year in beautiful weather, um, which I ordered up just for you folks. Uh, I take full credit for that. Um, but I do want to let you know that in future years, INSLIP will be moving from an annual to a biennial format. So our next gathering will be in 2018. And we do hope to see you back for that event uh, when we gather next time at one of our partner institutions, I'm sure. We look forward to that. Since INSLIP is hosted each year by a different member institution, the gathering always takes, um, takes its tone from the university that's hosting it. Um, in the past, Gonzaga and Eastern Washington University have been our hosts this year, Whitworth. Um, and it also takes its flavor from its partner institution. And uh, our co-sponsor this year is the Southern Poverty Law Center. Um, the Southern Poverty Law Center brings its expertise and its resources to you today. For those of you who've been enjoying the K through 12 track on learning how to use the resources available through teaching tolerance, you're a direct beneficiary of the Southern Poverty Law Center's presence. Um, soon we all will be able to uh, benefit from and learn from the wisdom of the Southern Poverty Law Center in the form of our keynote speaker, and we are so grateful for their sponsorship. Please join me in thanking the Southern Poverty Law Center. Thank you. Our partnership with the Southern Poverty Law Center didn't happen by accident. It was actually um, really a logical consequence of the mission and the vision of Whitworth University and its commitments particularly to work in diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um, so the location that you're at today uh, is not accidental. Uh, Whitworth University um, benefited from the, the leadership of Whitman College here in the state of Washington by joining a program called Colleges Teach the Movement. And I'm hopeful that you might have heard about some of that this morning in the teaching tolerance sessions if you attended them. The Colleges Teach the Movements program began um, with uh, Kate Schuster and Noah Levitt, both of whom are joining us uh, for this two-day conference, and I'm so happy to have them here. And Whitworth was able to um, learn from, borrow from, and then adapt that program and bring it here to the east side of uh, the, the state. It's also present out at Seattle with uh, Seattle University and a partnership going on there. Um, and it was really a logical step for Whitworth to become involved in the college teaches, Colleges Teach the Movement program um, because of the commitment that the university has made in its strategic plan to a set of goals related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And these focus not only on the recruitment and retention of students and of staff, but on ongoing professional development at all levels across the life of the university. So having the Southern Poverty Law Center here makes a lot of sense for Whitworth. And we're very proud uh, to have our partners here with us and to have all of you too. It is also, and I, I think this is worth stressing in an environment like this, um, a logical fit for Whitworth to be hosting the Southern Poverty Law Center, given our theological identity as well. And this is probably something you know a little less about, um, given today's sessions. But I do want to let you know that Whitworth, historically affiliated with the Presbyterian Church, has a theological identity that's going to seem a little strange when you stop and reflect upon it. I've reflected upon it a lot working here. Um, and Whitworth defines itself as being evangelical in orientation, reformed in identity, but finally ecumenical in its posture to the world. And it's that ecumenical flavor to our theological identity that allows folks like me who are not Presbyterian um, to work at this university and to be on the staff. It's that same ecumenical orientation to the world that allows the university to um, propose and then follow through with a community-engaged mission. Um, and so we have a, a sort of dual focus, a Janus-faced gaze, you might say, in terms of 
We have a commitment to speak the truth, and we have a commitment to do justice. And we think that you can do both of those things very carefully, very thoughtfully, but they can be done together, which is increasingly unique among Christian institutions of higher education. I'm grateful to work at Whitworth and to, um, to be a part of this theological community. Now, with that said, um, and looking beyond Whitworth, I do want to make you aware of a commitment that all universities that are a part of the Inland Northwest Surface Learning Partnership share, and that is a commitment to true reciprocity. Many of you are faculty, many of you are educators, but all of you, I hope, are coming to be comfortable with the idea of working together in the future and partnering to bring the resources and the expertise that you have in the community to inform the practice and the theory of the university and vice versa. This vision of reciprocity is one of the fundamental values of the Inland Northwest Service Learning Partnership. And whether you're at the community colleges of Spokane or at WSU, we are all committed to what we understand to be true reciprocity. But that term needs some development. I think beyond a common way that we use it, we think of a transactional relationship when we think of reciprocity. We think of mutual benefit. And so many of our programs do provide mutual benefit, both the university benefiting through expanding the learning of its students or the research of its faculty, and then the community partners benefiting through expanded capacity or growth in their programs. But INSLIP would like to see this commitment to reciprocity grow beyond a transactional relationship to something that we see as far more transformative because we would like for the knowledge, the understanding, and the awareness of the community to expand the theoretical paradigms and the epistemologies that inform practice within the university and vice versa. It's when we can grow one another's understandings and our knowledge of what we do that true reciprocity occurs. So if we can think beyond the programmatic to actually changing the way that we look at the world and at one another, then I think INSLIP will have achieved its goal. And while that's a lofty goal, I think it's one we should pursue. Now with that in mind, we have a wonderful speaker here to help us expand our understanding of work related to diversity, equity, and inclusion. And that speaker is Leisha Brooks. Leisha Brooks leads the Southern Poverty Law Center's outreach efforts on a series of initiatives, many of them related to social justice. She is the outreach director for the center, and she frequently gives presentations across the country to promote tolerance and diversity. It's interesting because every time I correspond with Leisha, she's either in another state or frequently on another continent. And I think she'll be in China in just a few weeks as well. Um, so I live vicariously through her travel stories. She also serves as the director of the Civil Rights Memorial Center in Montgomery, Alabama. And this is an interpretive center which is designed to provide visitors to the memorial with a deeper understanding of the civil rights movement. It is one that embraces and engages with that mission to be transformative in its work with the community, not merely to provide information and be transactional in learning, but truly to change minds. Alicia joined the Southern Poverty Law Center staff back in 2004. She's been there for over a decade. And she began as the director of the Mix It Up program, which is a part of Teaching Tolerance. And I had so much fun yesterday because we hosted our first Mix It Up lunch here in our dining hall. Students really didn't quite know what to make of it at first. But then when they saw that there were corn dogs and SpongeBob ice cream popsicles, they loved it. Um, and we had a great time. Students simply played trivia with a new person they never met before, asked some basic questions. UK through 12 folks know all about Mix It Up at lunch, especially in the middle schools. Um, and, and we're coming to appreciate the joys of it here at Whitworth ourselves, thanks to Leisha. Leisha contributes to the Southern Poverty Law Center's Teaching Tolerance Program. As both an author and as an educator, she has written a number of works related to race and the civil rights movement, which are posted on the center's blog. And as you know from hearing Kate this morning, it gets a lot more hits than a lot of academic journals. She's written reflections on the Black Lives Matter movement, gender equity, implicit racial bias, historical events like the Freedom Summer, and landmark decisions like Brown versus Board of Education. And she's a frequent speaker at community activists, groups, and on college campuses. It's interesting to note that before she joined the center um, over a decade ago, she spent 12 years working in a number of capacities uh, for the National Conference for Community and Justice in Los Angeles. I found out she was also a fifth grade teacher, which she says is the best grade to teach, by the way. So fifth grade teachers out there, uh, you probably know the virtues of fifth graders. She understands. Throughout her career, she's worked to promote racial and cultural understanding, and here at Whitworth, she has certainly done the same because she got out there with her popsicle yesterday at Mix It Up and had a good time as well. So please join me in welcoming Leisha Brooks.
changing. We're on. We're on? Thank you. Thank you, Ross, and thank you all. Please keep eating. Don't mind me at all. <laughs> um, it's interesting to be introduced, you know, um, because you learn about things that you'd forgotten about yourself. And in, in this, 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 this Google thing is really real because I'd forgotten about some of those articles. I'm like, oh my God, how'd you find out about, how'd you find out about that? Um, I'm really, really happy and honored to be here. And first, giving honor to my colleagues over there, Jara Botella and, and Kate Schuster. They're the real brains behind the whole uh, operation. And I'm just happy to uh, escort them here. I, when Ross and I first started talking about my participating in this event, I had some trepidation because, as she knows, and I, I must say this every day, I'm not of the academy. I am a recipient of the academy. I went through the academy. I had the distinct pleasure, honor, thrill of my life to graduate from Loyola Marymount University, home of radical Jesuit priests. It was just the best um, experience for me. And um, did some uh, upper graduate, graduate level work as well, but it's not who I am. Who I am is really of the community. So when Ross made it clear to me that that the goal was really to bridge those two, to bring those two things together, I was in. I was gratified to hear Chancellor Brown this morning talk about, um, what did you say, integrating the academy and the community. So I'm happy to represent that, that that works for me. And then lastly, um, Ross, what you just said about um, Whitworth's religious philosophy or belief, commitment to speak the truth, and a commitment to do justice. So that's what I hope to present to you today. Um, I purpose to speak the truth. It'll be my truth. And so I ask that, that you kind of recognize and go along with me on that. It may not be your truth, but it's, it, it's my truth. And I, and I do share with you a commitment to do justice. I'm also reminded of something, Kate, you said this morning, Kate, about... Um, just the experiences, bringing to life the experiences and the assets of people from the community. It's hard for, 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 um, for folks to do that, and it's hard for me to do that, but I'm going to share with you my story. Little, little warning. <laughs> it's my story. The first, uh, the first slide, though, it, it's fabulous to me, may be a bit alarming to you, so, so look at it, take it in, have your personal kind of reaction to what it is, what you see, how you feel about that, what it makes you think about, what you connect with, and then come back to me, because it's my story. I was born and raised in Oakland, California, and I was born and raised during the, right during the black empowerment movement. And though I was young, 12, 11, 12 at the time, it had a profound and lasting impact on who I am today. I like to share with people um, this, this, this story, this feeling I have about myself and how grateful I am to have grown up in Oakland during that particular time. The Black Empowerment Movement was the only time, I think, in, in our nation's history where you would hear a song, remember James Brown say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. It may not have had a lot of resonance with you. You just thought maybe it was a catchy tune, something good to dance to, but it was deep. It was just transformative. In a place where you can imagine, um, and I know you all are familiar with talking about the, the um, systemic issues of, of race and oppression in society, so you know that to grow up black in this country is to grow up um, oftentimes feeling less than. So to, 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 to have that era of uh, black is beautiful, just all the messages that, um, that were in the air at that time were positive. And so I grew up feeling very good, great in fact, about being black. And so that's, that's something that has just completely stayed with me. And that's not a hard, that's, a, that's not an easy thing to do as you walk through this world where we can agree that systemic racism is still um, an issue and anti-black sentiment is still an issue. So I grew up with that. Then, um, when I was in junior high, I moved to Los Angeles, often referred to as you know the most diverse, culturally diverse place on the planet. And it was a good move for me. I didn't know it, 
and this is all in retrospect, right? Um, the diversity was amazing. Let me step back a second. The diversity that I was familiar with in Oakland was um, um, certainly majority black. There was, a, there was a small Filipino population and a small Asian population. And I'm, I'm reminded of something that you said, Kate, about, um, and certainly you all are familiar with this, about the increasing diversity amongst the student population coupled with the increasing um, racial segregation and isolation of students in schools. But my story is, is that I grew up in a racially segregated neighborhood, went to racially segregated schools. It wasn't necessarily a high poverty area, but it was definitely a working class area. So my mother divorced. We moved up a little bit, moved to Los Angeles, <laughs> moved up a little bit, and moved into more of a, probably a standard black middle class um, experience. And you should know that black middle class is a little bit different from from dominant culture middle class, but moved into that. And then got exposed to all this diversity. My, my junior high and high school, the demographics at that school were um, probably about 70% African American, 30% Asian American, specifically Japanese American. And I give you this level of detail because it meant so much, right, to my form, to, to forming who, who I am today and how I see other people in the world. So I'm exposed to, to um, Japanese-American classmates and colleagues, and that, that meant a lot. Went on to um, a high school that had similar demographics, but as I was graduating for, from high school and preparing to go to college, uh, a community organization, the National Conference, then the National Conference of Christians and Jews, also the National Conference for Community and Justice later, um, was recruiting for high school students to participate in a one-week experiential, you know, very intense human relations camp. And I remember this at, so clearly. I said, wow, I should go to that camp because I'm going to go to college. I'm probably going to have a white roommate. <laughs> I should go. They were talking about this diversity thing, and I'm like, I should go. I don't know nothing about white people. Um, <laughs> you know, really. And I, I, I just remember thinking that that's why I should go, because I was going to have a white roommate. Well, thank goodness I went, because that was another kind of transformative experience for me. This, this particular um, camp program brought together like 200 high school students from all across the LA area. It was intentionally, culturally, racially, ethnically diverse, and it was a one, one week, you know, eight in the morning till midnight intensive dialogue and experiential learning around uh, race, gender, class, immigration status, anti-Semitism, religious bigotry, family, and it was all of these things, and it was just life-changing. Uh, suffice it to say, it did help me with my three white roommates, and it was, everything worked out well. <laughs> um, so I had that experience, and I had the experience at that camp of uh, being encouraged to share my story and being encouraged to listen to the stories of other people. So it was at that time that I, I recognized that, hey, Leisha, it's not just you. You're not the only one that, that um, has felt othered or felt left out. Other people have a story, too. So because the, the camp was so well writ run, I was able to hear those stories. Heard stories from um, uh, people that, that, that have since become, become really good friends, Jewish people, around anti-Semitism and what that meant and what that felt like, and, and all I knew up to that point was, you know, a couple of stereotypical jokes about Jews, but I didn't know any personally, and at, it, was at, it was after those experiences, after those intimate experiences, that I became um, an ally and completely committed to doing all I could to, to stop anti-Semitism, and I feel strongly about that today because I have, I made real relationships with people, right? I heard stories from, um, Middle Eastern people, a young woman, you know, that, that I still think about today, Palestinian, who now lives, she moved, her family moved to Lebanon, and just talking about kind of all of who, who people are, and I developed this fascination with um, identity development and positive identity development. So I took that and went on, went on with, with my life, of course, and um, then what happened? Fast forward, you know, finished college, of course, and then um, went into teaching. 
And then the riots happened in 1992 in Los Angeles, and it was like, it was, it was earth-shaking. I mean, it, it's nothing like you, you see kind of on television, right? And some of you may have watched this. I won't say that. You may have, you know, seen it, seen it televised, but it wasn't the same. I mean, I lived in that community. I remember um, going to the church in the community that night, like right that night when the, the riots began, and then walking through, through the neighborhood the next day after, you know, witnessing the devastation and walking down, walking, walking down Crenshaw and through stores that had been, you know, burned and looted and seeing Korean, um, Korean store owners, you know, um, protecting their stores and such. And that really shook me, too. So it was at that time that I decided that um, I had to leave the classroom and go back, go work in nonprofit and work for this organization, NCCJ, that um, was still doing this great community work that was very important to me. And I did that, and um, don't regret it at all, because everything, everything about that work just expanded my understanding of who I am and more importantly, about who other people are. So that's how I got into the work of um, um, identity development, just this, this whole, these whole issues of, issue of oppression, anti-oppression work being very, very important to me. Fast forward, lots of things happened. I had a kid, and you know, he's wonderful, and all that. Um, and then I moved to Montgomery, Alabama. He grew up, and I moved to Montgomery, Alabama. Now, little did I know that moving to Montgomery, Alabama was going to be like coming full circle. I had no idea that, um, because this was before teaching the movement, I had no idea that, that the Black, pa Black Panther Party, in fact, started in Lowndes County at the very end of the Civil Rights Movement, which is right outside of Montgomery. Um, I had no idea that um, the, the Civil Rights Movement was more than you know, Dr. King uh, in his I Have a Dream speech or Rosa Parks. I, I knew nothing. So to, to be transported to Montgomery, Alabama, the birthplace of the civil rights movement, and then be immersed in um, civil rights history and people that, that were involved in the movement directly, because it wasn't that long ago, so there are people that stood with us, right? And it just, another transformative moment in Leisha's life. I got to look at um, the things that happened during the civil rights movement, like the lunch counter sit-in, which I don't remember anything about, quite frankly. You know, I mean, I was young. Why, why should I remember? But looking at things in hindsight, like looking at it, my adult self now, and looking at what um, uh, uh, African-Americans, black folks did during the civil rights movement to push back against oppression, fueled this um, energy in me. It just made me feel good, you know, fed that, that positive um, sense of self. When I think about um, the students who engaged in nonviolent protests during the lunch counter sit-ins and during the Freedom Rides, these both one-year campaigns that where, where black students in the South were joined by white allies from across the country and stood up against, you know, Jim Crow segregation, again, the Freedom Rides being a one-year campaign that was completely successful, that made me feel really good about who I am. Those kind of narratives are what counters the um, uh, effects of institutional racism, you know, in my daily life and make it possible for me to continue to feel good about myself in, in the face of, you know, adversity. Um, and then, like, it become being in the place in Alabama where George Wallace, you know, was... was four-term governor, and seeing all of this, um, uh, these buildings that are named after him or his wife, or then to know what he did and just be in that place where, you know, <laughs> where, you know, white supremacy just reigned and, 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 and flourished, um, it, it served to remind me that what, it, what, what I had learned about theoretically about, you know, theories of oppression and white supremacy and white privilege were really true. And before we were, we labeled them, labeled these things, people acted them out. And nobody did it better than um, George Wallace. Um, I'm still going back because, because I'm able to kind of reflect now on what influenced me. And I also, in connecting to, to hopefully what, what, what I want to be helpful to you is, 
is using my story and what has influenced my life to really think about those connections that you could develop with your students. And I believe that, that there's no opportunity for a connection or a real connection to be made if you don't understand or recognize um, where your students are coming from or what influences your students. Um, and, and not even in terms of kind of assets and deficits. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about life experiences that have some impact on their psyche while they're in your classroom or later. I don't know. But these things that I've come to learn that there were all of these things happening um, around me um, during my developmental years that when, when, when I was a student, you know, in the K-12 system, that I had no idea were impacting me, but they were. And so I don't think that I'm that unique, that, um, the, the, that there are things happening today that impact and influence your students and their development and who they are and how they um, act or react to any given situation, whether they know it or not. So us being the adults, you being the teacher, you being the educated one, it's really up to you to connect the dots and recognize that, that there are all these kind of tremendous influences happening on, in your kid's life. So I would remind us, and in, in, I'm, I'm moving into more of today, but looking at the influences of um, yesterday. Some of you, I don't really know your, your ages. I always increasingly feel like the oldest person in the room, but that's fine. I was, the 60s and the 70s were a great time to grow up. Um, so it may be history for, for some of you, but the 70s, the 1970s, after the Civil Rights Movement, we, we don't often talk about that in terms of um, um, the powerful things that happened around student activism. It was a time of tremendous political upheaval. Students, that, students during the 70s, for the first time in this nation's history, re really stood up to authority. And they were, in large part, responding to the war in Vietnam and the invasion in Cam Cambodia. Um, and then you, you may recall what happened in May 1970 at Kent State when four students were, were killed and then what the impact that that had on uh, the college student population across the country. There were sh their schools shut down. This is um, the University of Cincinnati where um, students, call, students called for the president to shut down the school. He did and they shut it down anyway and he ended up having to shut it down for two days. There was um, massive protests across, just across the United States. And I think sometimes that we forget that this thing happened. Um, <clears throat> then also kind of want to remind us of what, what else happened um, during the 70s. That was the advent of you know, the Chicano movement and tying it to the civil rights movement. I really do believe that that civil rights activism led um, other people to believe that they could also and should also advocate for their rights and, and, and the rights of people that look like them. So we had it, you know, with the women's movement, we had it with the Chicano movement. It was, it, the, the Chicano movement was just brilliant, you know, kind of um, mirroring, you know, echoing the Black Panthers with the Brown Berets. They were all, it was also a time when, um, when Chicanos were becoming more connected with their indigenous roots and not rejecting um, that. And, and this is all from my LA perspective, but it happened, and I know that it happened across the country as well. Fast forward to um, back to California, 19, in the early 19, late 1999 or 2000, can't remember. But Prop 8, Prop 8 187 happened. And Prop 187 is that anti-immigration bill from way, 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 you know, long time ago when, when, when um, California was thought to have, you know, lost its mind. Thank God it's, it's found itself and <laughs> returned to its more progressive roots. But Proposition 187 um, was really trying to disenfranchise um, Im immigrants and, and primarily Latinos and to keep them from being able to access social services and students really pushed back on that. So that was a part of, of the movement. I wanted to also bring forward and remind us that in the, in the late 60s and the early 70s was the second, second wave of feminism. And I was fortunate enough to, to go to college in the 70s when just when women's studies programs had just begun. And so then I get to layer that on as another, you know, 
um, identity and, and play with that and work with that and integrate that into um, who I am. So that brings us to today. And another reason I wanted to show kind of the protests that, that had happened in the past is because I get the distinct impression based on the fears that I see on people's faces, not teachers, adults, period, um, that, that there's, there's some kind of mm, fear, fear of um, college students and college student activism today. College student activism today, including Black Lives Matters, is no different than the college, college and student activism that happened in the 60s and the 70s. No different at all. Um, the current, the current, um, current student activism is played out in a nonviolent model for the most part, just as it was during the 60s and 70s. And if you look at the war protests of the 70s, they were primarily nonviolent, but there were some violent eruptions. In fact, um, what led to people point to the, the burning of the ROTC buildings at Kent State um, that led to the, to the violent actions of the violent pushback of the National Guardsmen uh, at that college. So you always have, there's, there's a nonviolent movement, you always have an element that will uh, will introduce some violence, but for the most part, the movement is nonviolent. So we're seeing students begin to revive that, that sense of um, uh, ownership, agency, and, and becoming um, active participants in the democracy again with the, um, the, the more recent immigration laws. Now, Alabama had the worst anti-immigrant bill um, and it passed, HB 56, that, that really um, went further than, than Arizona's SB 1070 in its, um, in its humiliation and dehumanizing of, of uh, migrant peoples. It, it was awful. I can't go into the details of it. But it was, enough, it was enough to push students and young people into protest, and this in Alabama. So you know it had to be kind of pretty bad. Um, and the combining nonviolent protests with um, civil rights litigation, again reminiscent of the civil rights movement, we won. And, and the Supreme Court ruled, of course, in, uh, against SB 1070 in Arizona and had the effect of shutting down all the other un unconstitutional laws that had taken place across the country. Um, okay, okay, those kids are so cute. So that began, and these things happen, these things, you know, don't happen in a vacuum, and sometimes they overlap and happen simultaneously, and sometimes it's a straight line, one influences the other, but the point I want you to understand is these things are happening. Back to California, um, I don't even remember, but these students, these black students are feeling the, the black and Latino students, feeling the impact of uh, Prop 209, that um, gutted the affirmative action programs in uh, California universities, which pre prevented them from um, considering race in, in, appli in applications, produced a plummeting of the black and Latino student enrollment. So these students are, they were, <laughs> were faced with looking at what diversity? You, you told us this is diver that, that this is a diverse campus, but where's the diversity? When in fact, these are all the only black men on campus, save the athletic, from um, those that are, that are brought on as student athletes. So those videos began to circulate, and that influences other uh, students across campuses, um, across the United States. And social media has become um, the contemporary college student and young people's tool to spread mess messages fast. Now that led to, of course, um, the well, social media led to the popularity of the hashtag BLM or Black Lives Matters. But let me do, I want to do a little, little, little bit of an education on how Black Lives Matters began because I think it, the, the story gets conflated and people don't really understand what happened. Um, in, the, in the aftermath of the murder of Trayvon Martin in Florida, four, three black women who lived in Los Angeles, one of which went to my camp program, um, were emailing each other and posting on social media. You know, they were sad about what happened to Trayvon Martin and they're talking to each other. Wow, do Black Lives Matter or what? And then somebody hashtagged it on their Facebook page and that was that. 
Fast forward a year later, after the, the murder of um, the killing of Michael Brown in Ferguson, those same women, three black queer women, revived that hashtag and then began to spread it out across the country. Now, students, college students, young people in general, were, I think, really awakened um, by the murder of Trayvon Martin. Now, remember Trayvon Martin was, was unarmed. He's the one that had on the hoodie, and he had his, his iced tea and his Skittles. And I'm telling you, this, this, this killing really resonated with young people across racial and ethnic groups, across class groups. Um, we had a, we had a uh, vigil at the Civil Rights Memorial, and there were vigils all across the country. It really felt like what, what happened across the country in the, after the death of, um, of uh, Emmett Till. I mean, it was a, it was a child. Somebody was killed. Um, I heard from young people that, that they so related to him because of the hoodie, and it was part of youth culture, and, and, and young people could completely relate to the fact that a, a young person was followed or suspicious because they had on a hoodie, right? And so that really, that really kind of got the attention of young people. Well, fast forward, and you know there was a there was a non not guilty verdict in um, that trial against Mr. Zimmerman. People were a little upset, but nothing nothing really kicked off until the killing of Michael Brown. And and I was reminding a class that I was speaking to yesterday that that killing really meant a lot, right? It was, it was another reminder reminiscent of Emmett Till. Emmett, Till, Emmett Till's body was, uh, his mother didn't get his body for days. In the case of Michael Brown, the same thing was true. Did you know, in addition to, no, Trayvon Martin. Trayvon Martin, did family didn't get his body for days. Michael Brown's body lay in the street for four hours. Remember that? It was four and a half, four and a half hours, something like that. And people gathered around, and and the upset just grew. And social media being what it was, um, it took off. And so the Black Lives Matter um, movement really grew out of that. Now, fast forward to you know, there was a number of other killings, Michael Garner and Sandra Bland. The list goes on and on. But the fact of the matter is, is that young people are now paying attention, and they're paying attention to each and every death that occurs. And they're especially attentive to the deaths that occur um, against unarmed black and brown people. And not, just, and not just black and brown kids are paying attention to this. White kids are paying attention to this. Asian kids are paying attention to this. Black Lives Matter is, is the hashtag and the clarion call, but this movement is really um, supported by youth across the spectrum. If you look at some of the larger protests and demonstration movements that happen um, under the banner of Black Lives Matter, you see that they happen in Minnesota, in Minneapolis, in places that have an entirely, you know, in, in some instances, they were like all white groups holding up signs that, that say Black Lives Matter, which in my opinion is a really beautiful thing. It's reminiscent of the civil rights movement. Let's go back to the lunch counter sit-ins where whites, um, came and supported black folks um, in that movement, in the Freedom Rise and Freedom Summer, it's the same thing. And so young people seem to understand this, and um, we've learned through teaching tolerance that teachers are having some difficulty or some difficulty, mm. some challenge in being able to address these, these issues in their classroom. One, should I? Will it upset people? What do I do? What do I say? Blah, 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 blah. I, I give you, I, I just share with you that the issues are very present in the minds of young people. And it could be one side or the other. Let me say more, more, most importantly, if you happen to be teaching at a school where you think, oh no, the students here are not, <laughs> not allies to Black Lives Matter, and I understand that, even more important that you have the conversation. Even more important. Because um, white students that live in isolated areas with low diversity never have an opportunity to engage in real conversation or real dialogue about these issues. Um, tying it to the work of the Southern Poverty Law Center and the research that we see and what I've seen, you know, kind of even in our work in Los Angeles with first-time hate crime offenders is that um, white youth, and this is, this is so true, you all need to start talking to white youth about the issues of race because um, the demographics are changing so, and this has having an, a, a, an impact on them, and they have nobody to talk to. 
about it. Um, say what you will, you know, people of color certainly have their problems, but, you know, we can always find somebody to talk to about what's going on, and that, that helps release the valve a little bit and help direct um, the people in a, in a certain direction. Didn't mean to rant on that for a while, but I think, I think it needed to be said. Um, so, what does that say? I can't read this. Black Lives Matters impacts college administrators and campus policy. Okay, so you heard about, um, there's some debate about, mm, well, I don't think, I think that, you know, that the kids are um, being hypersensitive, um, and this is college, and, you know, they should toughen up and be prepared to have these hard conversations and be prepared to hear um, um, conflicting beliefs and values and all that. But students are saying in the aftermath, and put it in context, in the aftermath of all of these kind of shootings of unarmed young people and um, in an increase in, in student activism, now students are really connecting with, gosh, I don't think, I don't think, think things are right here. I don't think, I don't think things are fair. In fact, I feel unsafe. I feel this. I feel that. They're coming out with things. It may, their, their, their issues may or may not have merit but it's incumbent upon us to listen to them so we can help them uncover what is really going on. So, um, you know, you saw what happened at the University of Missouri and then student protests and students calling for the president to resign and this and that, and there's been a lot of criticism about the presidents who have resigned. Um, in Claremont in California, the, the students forced the president out. I'm not saying that, uh, I'm not calling for presidents to, to, to resign their positions. I'm calling on presidents, faculty, and staff of, of colleges and universities to engage these students in real conversation and to stay in it until we come to an understanding and then build programs, community partnerships, so that we can see to the needs, the very real needs of, of uh, students of color and marginalized students on, on college campuses. Um, because as we, as we look to kind of feel good about ourselves in terms of increasing racial and cultural diversity on campus, we can't feel good about that if we don't, at the same time, increase or create support systems in place for those very same students, right? There's gonna, there's, there's, there's gonna be a disconnect. So students are, students are feeling themselves. Students are being students. Students are doing what students have done all the time, questioning authority. And, um, of course, we would like to, them to do it in um, a real kind of, you know, thoughtful way. Now I got this picture, and I was so happy to be able to include this image of, do you know who he is? You should know. Kendrick Lamar. Um, if, you did not see the, if you did not see the Emmys, it was the best part of the Emmy program. And I included um, Kendrick Lamar because just like was true for, for, for me in the 60s and 70s, okay, you know, James Brown, Aretha Franklin, you know, Prince, whoever were my influencers. You all, you had, you had musical influencers, and the students today have influencers as well. And Kendrick Lamar, the messages that he is, he is sending out to young people, it may look chaotic to you and to me. No, it doesn't look chaotic to me. It may look chaotic to you, but, oh my God, he's talking about mass incarceration in the United States. And he's sending that message out to young people that, hey, they're trying to lock you guys up. And so these are very, these are very important messages that we want to be able to understand. Then there was the whole, the whole blowback against Beyonce at the, the Super Bowl for her formation message. What? <laughs> then there was all the stuff on Saturday Night Live. Oh, my God, she's black. What happened? I, I, thought, I thought she was one of us. Um, she... she She's like, my God, what does she mean? They're dressed like Black Panthers. Look at this. What does that mean? What does this mean? What does that mean? What, what is going on? So again, these are messages that, um, that the artists are relating to their audiences. And, and students understand full well what that message is and, more importantly, make it real for themselves. So it's important for, for you to be mindful of popular culture and not dismiss it. I think that... Um, it's one of those um, assets that Kate talked about that, that, that we need to recognize that students have their ability to decode messages that we can't. 
Um, but in addition to Kendrick Lamar and Beyonce, there, you know, there's Macklemore. You're familiar with Macklemore. He's he's the you know the great white ally that's sending out these messages about right, white privilege, and doing a really really good job um, there. And I'm I'm just saying this because I'm just reminding us as you know we would tell our parents when we were young, be like you don't understand. So it's incumbent upon us to try to understand. Um, if I can move quickly, how much time do I have? Fifteen? Oh, great. Okay. So I wanted to include this information about the shifting demographics because I often hear at um, uh, events or conferences or meetings for teachers that we talk about the um, increasing diversity amongst the student population and the, the, the lack of, of that change amongst the teacher population. But I want to talk about like the population in general of the United States because this is another message that is being absorbed by um, our students or your students, and it's important that you know it and recognize and really un better understand the implications of this. As I shared again with the classes, and if you heard my little spiel, sorry, 1970, the, the demographics in the United States were somewhat like this: 83% white, 17% people of color, and as I've learned, that's pretty much what Washington State is today. Um, so the rest of the country is moving a little bit ahead. I would say that, that um, this particular breakdown on white to people of color is what is most comfortable for white people. That it feels really good, you know, like, oh wow, we're diverse, you know, because you see some other people. And it looks, it's great, you know, but it, it, it really is not as great as, as, as you think it is. Um, what's happening, though, is that across the country, and again, not here, I think I read that uh, Spokane was 83%, yeah, 83% white, and Washington State, seven, close to 75%. Um, in the U.S. today, and this is a 2010 census figure, 66% white, 34% people of color. And so that's a dramatic shift. That's really dramatic. And that's to tell people that's when you hear different languages, when you see, when you're starting printing, printing materials in different languages, when um, you pass through a whole neighborhood and, and identify it by its ethnic group that's new to you. Um, and people begin to kind of freak out and look, look up and say, God, what, what, what happened? What happened, to, what happened to my community? Where are my people? The fact of the matter is, is that it's happening and this trend is going to continue. Um, for some, it's really very difficult, a very difficult pill to swallow. Um, demographers have been talking about it for a long time, but now it's more mainstream media where they're talking about, you know, um, the white population will no longer be in the majority by 2040. I'm sure you've heard it. It used to be, they used to try to keep it secret, but, you know, now the word is out. <laughs> and it, people are, like, upset about it. And quite frankly, think that they can do something to change it, and you cannot. The data is what the data is, and you can't push back on it. You can't create laws and bills to, you can't create walls, you can't create bills, you can't do anything to change the dynamics of, of what is. These are the, the figures, the, the population growth since the year 2000 by ethnic group. And it gives you a real good idea of where, where we're headed. Asian and Pacific Islanders being the fastest growing immigrant group in the United States followed by Latino Hispanics. Um, uh, there's an increase in, with the, this particular chart pulls out Pacific Islanders, which shows a 35% increase, which is, I think, fabulous. And one of the, excuse me, one of the things I like is the American Indian Alaskan Native is on the up, 18%. I think that's fabulous. And um, then I always go last to the black one because I really want people to recognize that the black population is and has been for some time between 12 and 14 percent across the United States. We just are not responsible for everything that happens in this country. <laughs> it's, it, and it's, just, it's just the truth. I think we forget it, though, because we live in this black-white paradigm. So whenever we're talking about race, it's white people and black people like they have equal, like we have equal numbers or something, and it's just not true. Um, the black population and the white population over time will continue to, to stagnate and remain kind of close to 15 percent. Whites would probably stay around 15%. Blacks would probably stay around 14, maybe 13%. Um, and the other groups will continue to grow. We also had, thankfully, 
from the U.S. Census Bureau, which added multiracial, uh, not added, gave people the, the opportunity to identify as biracial or multiracial, and those numbers pool from black and white. And so, sorry, our numbers are going to stay the same and the others are going to grow. And that's what we need to look at. Now, students, 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 or I, don't know, I, want, I want to say, but I can't say, because people always say, oh, students recognize this. Oh, my God, this is the most tolerant group of people, young people uh, ever in the world, <laughs> you know, by virtue of the fact that they're biracial, multiracial, or that the demographics in the country is, is, have changed. Not, I, I say it's not true. We live in more racially isolated, segregated communities than we, than we ever have. There might be tremendous racial and ethnic diversity amongst the current generation, but they don't go to school together. They don't live together. They're not hanging out together. They're not. There might be more exposure. There is more exposure through popular culture, like on TV and in music and all of that, and people are under the mistaken impression that they know people, but they do not. Trust me, they do not. So when, and I think that that, that um, uh, Current pop, the current student population believes that too, because because a, a lot of times for them, like intimate relationship, relationships are are created and formed through video, through through social media, and they feel like it's real, and it is real in some ways. But push come to shove, when something happens, that ice, those those feelings of isolation and what those 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 attitudes that people have when they when they come from isolated communities come out. MTV did a survey um, a couple of years ago that talked about um, millennials and their, their ideas or their feelings on, on race and racial discrimination and all that. They buy into the whole reverse discrimination thing, um, white students by and large. Um, they, um, they hold the same or similar biases about people of color that most, most people of, of any generation do. So we have a lot of work to do. And I, and I would encourage us to try to do that together. Through Teaching Tolerance, we talked about one of the ways to do that is to, to intentionally or more, more, in, more intentionally, more actively, more proactively support students who are standing, standing up, taking a stand for justice. If, we're, if you're using the, um, the great professional development tool um, that Jarrah's talking about, you're moving your students to action. And, and please don't move students to action if you're not su prepared to support them in an action. Um, don't do it. Don't, don't expose them to it. Because you tell kids something, they're going to do it. There was a case, this, this piece talks about, there was a case in, um, uh, I don't know where it was, but a 15-year-old girl was suing, suing her high school um, because she was disciplined for participating in the um, day of, National Day of Silence supported by GLSEN. That's where the kids put tape over their mouth or promise not to say anything in, in solidarity with um, LGBT folks. The school said the school said that protest was in opposition to their you know policies and oh, and she couldn't believe it and so she tried to do it anyway. They pulled her out of the third period class and kept her in isolation for the rest of the day. So now she's suing the school district and the board. Um, there was a high school student who after failing to get um, school officials to pay attention to one of her classmates who has a dis developmental disability was being bullied on the school bus, the girl said that she was going to stand up to the bullies herself. And oh my gosh, then she got in trouble for standing up to the bully. The, the, the school called her a bully and banned her from riding the bus. So we have to... We have to find ways to support our students. And to remember, I wrote this down, um, the, the quote from Dr. King that says, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. Now, we may disagree on what unjust laws are, and young people might have a different definition of what unjust laws are or unjust policies are, but they still have that moral responsibility to stand up to it. It might be our responsibility to help them figure that out, to really help them determine whether it's just or unjust, but we have to help them do that. And we can't punish, we, we should not punish them or demean them for standing up for what they think is morally correct, even if we disagree with it. Um, 
we're trying to, at SPL, uh, SPLC, we started a, a new program, SPLC on campus, with the, with, the, with the purpose of supporting student activism. We saw this activism happening around, around us on college campuses, students not having resources and support to, to organize and to follow the tradition, the great tradition of nonviolent resistance. We wanted to help them. So we're making um, this program available to them, offering um, SPLC support and resources. We're asking them to look at issues on, in their, on their campuses, in their community, through the lens of, of some of the work that we do, specifically around economic justice, um, juvenile justice, and LGBT rights. We're also encouraging civil rights pilgrimages. There's a lot going on in communities, and we want students, as you do through your program, we want them to connect to the communities in which they're learners. Um, I'm not at all familiar with, with the, the dynamics of this particular community or the communities here, but I know in Los Angeles, and you probably heard in SC, you go to USC and you stay there. And they build highways around you so that transportation around you so you could stay in this isolated community of USC and not connect with the, with, the, with the people who actually live there, right? And I just, I think that that's, that's just wrong. So we want, we want to encourage students to look at what's going on on their campuses, look for unjust laws, unjust laws and policies and challenge them, help their universities and help their communities be places of justice. Um, and going back to that commitment to justice, help them do just that. And that is, I think, all I have for you. Thank you very much. Was I to entertain questions? Do we have time? Questions, comments, concerns? <laughs> Nothing? God, you know how that makes me feel, right? Well, I appreciate, I really do appreciate you listening. Um, you can find me in Montgomery, Alabama. If you have a question or, or you take issue kind of with what I said or you want to talk about it, I'm happy, happy to do that. If you're more importantly, if you want some resources or some support, please let me know. This brave soul has a question. Thank you so much. Um, I'm curious if you could talk a little bit more about Southern Poverty Law Center's monitoring of hate crimes and mm. hate groups, especially, okay. um, well, we're from Western Washington, but we have had issues in um, Olympia mm. and uh, in response to a lot of community organizing and especially how college campuses can get behind um, stopping hate. Thank you. Um, the Southern Poverty Law Center since 2000 monitors and tracks active hate groups in the United States. You could go to our website and find um, the listing for all the active hate groups in Washington State. There are eight currently, or there were eight active hate groups in 2015, 892 um, in the United States for that year. What we try to do is um, share that information with local law enforcement, with Homeland Security, so that they can be aware of the threat. We try to um, shine a light on the threat of domestic terrorism, which, which is what um, th this was called. Um, terror they were called domestic terrorists. Klan Klansmen were called domestic terrorists before we used even the term terrorist for foreign terrorists. And we want to keep a, 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 a light on that. We, we don't do, we don't, we don't obviously arrest or launch our own investigations, but what we do is try to give that information to law enforcement and publish information about um, the activities of hate groups and probably more importantly what um, elected officials or people of interest do with them. So if someone, for instance, was running for public office and we had some in intelligence that they were connected to a group that we identify as a hate group, then we feed that to the media so that, so that you know, they're uncovered. We also do what we can to sow distension, tension between the different groups because there's a lot of tension across, across these different groups, be they neo-Nazi groups, neo-Federer groups, Klan groups, or any number of um, different ideologies for hate groups. But suffice it to say, the vast majority, the overwhelming majority are white supremacists and anti-Semitic. 
I don't know if that helps. That's what we do. And sometimes we bring lawsuits. Um, we've had 15 major cases against hate groups. You probably are familiar with the one in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho, against the Aryan Nation. Produced a $6 million judgment against the Aryan Nation, and we were able to take their property. <clears throat> those, are, those major cases are fewer and far between, and we do this other investigative reporting or investigative work to marginalize groups every day. If there aren't any other questions, we're going to be beginning our next sessions at 2 o'clock in Weyerhaeuser Hall in 15 minutes. Please join me in thanking Leisha Brooks for being here with us today. Thank you.